Hapade, Talopalana, and welcome to Champions of the Pacific. I'm Sarah Jane Hopgood, filling in for the lovely Tali Anderson. I'm Vinnie Wiley. Today, we ask Can a Pacific Island country qualify for the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup? And we meet the Marshall Islands' first ever Olympian. History will be made in 2023 when Oceania plays host to football's FIFA Women's World Cup for the very first time. But will there be another first? Can a Pacific Island team make it to the biggest stage in the world game? Australia and New Zealand are co-hosting the tournament and OFC Women's Football Development Officer Emma Evans believes hosting the event down under will be a game changer for women's football in New Zealand and the wider Pacific. In terms of inspiring and empowering you know, young girls, they'll, they'll see it, they'll feel it, they'll know how big of a deal it is and, and how great football is and that, that's the beauty of it. It's the, the traction that this playoff tournament and the World Cup will, will bring and will cause is it's hard to even describe at this point, but the whole Oceania region is, is so excited. And it's really for us as OFC, how can we make sure that the playoff tournament and the World Cup leaves a lasting legacy through the entire Pacific? And, and that will be our big focus. New Zealand are the reigning Oceania champions and they've qualified automatically as World Cup hosts alongside Australia. The football ferns have represented OFC at the last four World Cups and are ranked 22nd in the world. But despite the tournament being expanded from 24 to 32 teams, Oceania has not been awarded a second qualifying berth for their World Cup in two years. This time, the OFC Women's Nations Cup winner will compete against nine other teams from the likes of Europe, Asia and South America for the final three qualifying spots. Papua New Guinea, the next best-ranked side in Oceania at 47 in the world, and have finished runners-up to New Zealand in three of the past four Oceania tournaments. PNG Women's Football Development Officer Margaret Acker says the road to the World Cup remains a steep uphill battle for Pacific Island countries. It's not getting any easier when you win the if you win the Nations Cup, it gets harder because uh, with the ten team competition, it's not from the region itself; it's outside. You, we have teams from outside our region, and so it gets harder. I believe that you know if we want to prepare for that, we need to work um, the Asian countries because they will be featuring in that tournament. Um, South America, which I believe impossible at this stage because of COVID, but it will be good to get a few hard games outside of our region to be able to experience that level of football. COVID-19 hasn't exactly helped things, with most Pacific countries not having played a competitive match since the Pacific Games in Samoa two years ago. Former Crystal Palace and Wellington Phoenix striker Paul Eiffel was appointed coach of the Samoa women's team back in February, but has been unable to travel there from New Zealand because of COVID-19 border restrictions. Samoa are unlikely World Cup contenders at 109 in the world rankings, but that didn't stop the Barbados International from dreaming when he spoke to RNZ earlier this year. For any island nation to be able to get to that stage and, and be within, you know, spin distance of a World Cup is, is something pretty special. And if you get a Pacific nation to a World Cup, it's, it's life-changing for all the people involved. So it's a massive thing for, for me as a coach and a massive thing for the country. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to taking up that challenge. Back to PNG and Margaret Acker says funding is available from both Oceania Football and FIFA and that teams are desperately waiting for the borders to open so they can go out into the world and test themselves against other countries and regions. I don't mind going to Australia and getting belted whatever nail and then come back and building from there because that's the only way we can learn. If we just do things domestically, it doesn't help. We need to know what's outside of where we are. 
we need to know what level of football other people are playing outside of our countries. In that way, we can push ourselves, we can work hard to, to get to that level at some stage. If we're going to look at things domestically, uh, we're not getting anywhere. And especially in our region, um, the islands, we need to start looking at going to competitions outside or having friendlies outside of our region. Emma Evans admits it's both a daunting and exciting prospect for the Pacific's top teams. You know, having the potential to play still in a world-class tournament um, as that qualifying 10-team tournament is a massive opportunity. And I think we forget that we are still such a young footballing nation, you know. So to have now that stepping stone to the World Cup and where these players and, and coaches are exposed to international football at that level um, is going to be incredible. And of course, we would love to see an OFC team make that kind of those final spots to then get through to the World Cup. But if they don't, I think there's still so much that they'll take away from that tournament, the exposure to football at that level, um, the fans, but, you know, just the level that they'll be playing at will be a step up from what they've seen currently within the Pacific. So I think there'll be there'll be so many positives to take away from that. But of course, we hope to see a, a second OFC team at the World Cup, especially given that it's on the side of the world. So the question is, is it possible? Is it realistic for a Pacific Island nation to take on the world and win? A Pacific Island nation in two years. Yes, it's possible. Most of the countries in the region, especially the islands, we are doing shortcuts at the moment. Uh, a lot of football is focused in the um, seniors and not junior level. So we need to start thinking about development if we want to go to the World Cup. If, if we're not going to do development, forget about going to the World Cup. It, it won't happen. It will not happen. What makes us think that you know we can just go there and win the tournament and go to the World Cup without no foundation at all? It won't work that way. It will not happen. I think if we leave it till you know the end of the end of the year and we begin work, then it will be too late because we're seeing this momentum build for the women's game. We're seeing what's happening in other regions, and and we need to make sure that these players are in a regular training environment. They have their own individual training plans, and the coaches are in the best possible or have the best possible support wrapped around them. You know to be able to work with these players. So. I think if we if we put everything into it for this year into the Nations Cup and then from the Nations Cup build obviously this team towards this playoff tournament, I have no doubt that they will go there and, and surprise some of these other countries. And so there's the hopes and dreams of Papua New Guinea, of Samoa, of all the countries in the Pacific, Salah Jane, and I guess now the countdown is on. OFC Women's Nation Cup is in June and July, COVID willing. Wrong press, I'm always winning, never quit. He's a rapper, a model, a father, and if all goes to plan, even a future movie mogul. But before all that, Roman Kress was a runner. In 2008, the Carvin-born Minnesota-raised sprinter became the first person to represent the Marshall Islands at the Olympic Games. And the first in our series, speaking with some of the Pacific's first Olympians in the lead-up to Tokyo, Roman Kress tells me how he caught the running bug and began an Olympic family legacy. You know, I had a, a neighbor of mine, he, he, he competed in a lot of sports and he was always trying to encourage me to compete with him because we played a lot of games and stuff outside and I was pretty fast, as was he. And he kind of talked me into it, talked to his mother, talked to my father and got me involved. We started playing football and also track, basketball. So that's kind of what I was immersed in at an early age was basketball, football and track. I think I was, I was 11 years old when I first started competing and I, I seen success right away on a local level. 
<laughs> when I went to the regional uh, championships in America, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. Because, you know, in Minnesota, it's cold here. And uh, usually you run for like two months out of a year, practice-wise. There was no indoor track at that time. And I think when I first started seeing success in track and field was when I started training year-round right after high school. That's when I started seeing big results in my development. The idea or the notion of representing the Marshall Islands in track and athletics, um, I guess the Olympic Committee was only formed, I think, 2001 and then became recognized, you know, five years later. So so that Beijing Games that you did compete in was was actually the first opportunity for anybody to be able to represent the Marshall Islands. Had had the idea of representing the Marshall Islands been something that you'd thought about or, or discussed prior to that, or is it just when the oh, yeah. opportunity came up? I was one of the initiators of us getting membership because I was trying to very, very hard in 1999. And we were close. We were very close, but the Marshall Islands didn't have all their uh, ducks in a row to be recognized by the IOC. Uh, so my father and I, and we sent a lot of emails and Marshall Islands wasn't organized at that point in time, but they did. Uh, and by the, this is when I actually qualified um, B standard at that time. I was, I was in peak form around that time, 99, 2000. And um, after that, I, I competed. I still competed in my college years, but I didn't have uh, the same desire because when we didn't make it to Sydney, I just kind of just left it alone. I didn't think about Olympics anymore. And then 2004 passed by in Greece and then 2008 came around and they finally had membership. I remember it was, it was 2008, it was in like March or April. And I got a call, I believe it was in the middle of the night. It was like 4 a.m. or something. And they asked if I wanted to compete. It was a, a, the Marshall Islands uh, Olympic Federation co- contacted me. And they asked uh, if I wanted to compete. And I was like, well, I'm not even in shape anymore, man. So I'm like, like track and field shape. I was still in shape, but I wasn't in track and field shape. I was like, well, I, yeah, I'll do it. You know, But it was kind of bittersweet because I felt like I should have been in Sydney in 2000. I qualified and I didn't feel like I deserved it in 2008. It was more like a charity, how I looked at it as. The 100 metres obviously is one of the glamour events of an Olympic Games or, or of a track meet. So um, I think 10.39, is that your PB? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and so as you say, that was around that turn of the century time, 1999. And uh, and then when you finally made it to, to Beijing, I think 11.18. So considering such time had passed, were you relatively yeah. happy with that performance considering you were... I think in your thirties, no. I was, I was very disappointed. I, I, I thought for sure I should have ran under 11 for sure. When you, I jumped back into it immediately, like around end of April. And I, you know, I had what, May, June, July, I had three months, maybe three and a half to get prepared. I knew it wasn't realistic because I'm a very logical person. I knew I just, I was just happy to put that on a resume and, and kind of put that, um, to rest in my track and field career. Cause it was, it was shortened. It was a very quick rise and fall. You know, I pulled my hamstring in 2000, January, 2001. And I just never ran the same ever again. That really hurt me. Cause I think in 2000, in the year 2000, I was, I was ranked 11th in the world in the 60 meters and in the 55. So something I do think about periodically and what if we could have, but I'm, I'm happy for what happened. And I think everything happened for a reason. And so you finally did make it to Beijing. You finally were representing the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands were finally represented at the Olympic Games, the elite sporting competition in the world. So what was it like to be there with some of your teammates who were also experiencing that for the first time, um, to, to be there representing your culture, your, your country, and for you personally, I guess, to be the first of those athletes to actually be out there competing and um, to be creating history? It was amazing. I just I remember how I felt. It was the same feeling I felt when I first competed for the Marshall Islands in Guam. 
That's my first international competition. And I was like 20, 21 years old. And when I went to Guam, I felt the same thing. Everybody knew about me, everybody was expecting all these big things, you know, and it didn't work out too high. One, I got a silver down there, I got hurt in, in the hundred, but I got covered in time to um, get a silver in the 200. But I remember that's that same feeling I felt when I was in the Olympics. Uh, of course, you have a family connection to the Olympics. You were the first Marshall Islands athlete and, you know, eight years later, your daughter, um, you know, had that same experience um, competing in Rio. Was that always on the cards? Did she sort of take to it like you did or no, how did that come about? It wasn't the same. I, I mean, I for for some years, I, I was obsessed with track and field. They're, my kids are not like that. It was more, and I didn't force my kids to do track and field either. They wanted to do it, but I'm not going to force dedication and desire on them. I mean, either you have it or you don't. It was more of a social thing for her because she was competing uh, in high school, but she didn't have the same type of intensity that I had. I didn't like to lose. See, my daughter didn't care if she won or lost. She just she just liked competing and liked being out there, but she didn't really care about the workouts either. So you had to you know push her a little bit. And actually, I had a friend of mine uh, that actually still helps out. He's coaching my son right now. Uh, help, he was help coaching her because we butt heads too much, you know. So I was like, well, why don't you just do it? And I'll just kind of stand from afar because I was being too, I could be too hard on her. So she probably would have quit if I would <laughs> continue to, to train her back in uh, 2016. So Yeah. And so you went over to Rio and, and watched her. What was that like, you know, having experienced it yourself and then to, to be watching your own daughter competing, even if she wasn't maybe quite as obsessed as you say you were? Uh, yeah. That must have been a really proud moment. I was. I, w- I was happy that she was uh, able to compete. She, she pretty much ended that chapter of her life right after. I think that all, all that pressure and stress for those year and a half or two that came with it, I think when she ran, it was actually her birthday too. She ran on her birthday at the 2016 Olympic Games and that's, that was her last race. She hasn't competed ever since. And I was, I was trying to get her into these Micronesian games and I don't think that's definitely not in the cards <laughs> for her. I think she is done. But my son is going to compete, and hopefully I can get him into uh, 2024. seems pretty early. It's a possibility. But 2028 in L.A., I think he, my son will be there. If he continues to train, he'll be there. If you want to hear more from champions of the Pacific like Roman Crest, you can find us online at rnz.co.nz and click on the Pacific tab, or we broadcast into the region on RNZ Pacific and RNZ National. Be sure to tune in next week when we catch up with a weightlifting champion who now wields his power in Parliament. Until then, Luke and you. Kakite.